Good morning, church. Great to see you all here this morning, and for those in the cafe and for any online. Uh, I'm Les Crawford, one of the elders here, also work full-time with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. That's what this little symbol FOI means. It's not freedom of information, like some people have thought. And uh, it's my delight to open the scriptures this morning and share a message with you concerning Jesus' prayer. And I guess uh, the biggest question that we need to ask about this chapter is, how's your prayer life? Now, I'm not expecting you to give me a verbal answer, but as you think about prayer and your relationship to prayer, I'm sure that there's many things that come to mind. Uh, Just recently, as uh, a group of elders and a number of uh, men who are involved in uh, a training program, uh, we were studying together what it means to be spiritual. And uh, one of the articles was focused particularly on the matter of prayer. Uh, the necessity of prayer for spirituality and particularly for leaders. Uh, And one of the things we do is we discuss that article and we're supposed to think of applications. What can we do with what we've learned from our study together? And I was uh, quite convicted by that particular article. And so uh, my application was to actually get up a bit earlier in the morning and spend some more time in prayer, uh, which I've been doing uh, for the last couple of weeks. And Uh, I won't be perfect at doing this. I'll miss mornings. There's bound to be times when I fall short of my own commitments. That's being fallen and human. Uh, But I was then reflecting over what I was praying for. If you get a little bit more time to pray, then you might run out of things to pray. Uh, In my case, there's plenty to pray about. Uh, And I realized as I thought about my prayers that most of them were focused on others, interceding for other people. And I realized that there was a missing person, me. I didn't really pray much for myself. And as I thought about that, I thought, well, why is it that I'm neglecting myself in prayer? You know, was it because I didn't need prayer? Well, the easy answer to that was certainly not. I have plenty of need for prayer. Uh, Maybe it was because other people's needs were more important or greater than my own. And uh, in many ways, that might be true, but spiritually, that's certainly not true. Uh, My spiritual needs are as much as anybody's. And then I thought, well, maybe it's because I think that if I pray about myself a lot, that I'm being somewhat selfish or self-centered. Now, maybe that's your thought about prayer, that you know, I neglect to pray for myself because that seems to be selfish. And I think this morning, as we look at Jesus' prayer in John 17, especially the first five verses, uh, you're going to see that that's actually not true. Uh, The opposite is actually true. I also hope you'll see more than that from this passage, because it's a a very deep passage. Uh, But before we do that, let us bow and we'll pray and ask for God to lead us through his word. Thank you, Father, for this day and the opportunity we have to meet face-to-face in uh, this building Uh, as part of our overall community. Uh, Thank you for those who are meeting in the cafe and for those who are meeting at home. And we pray that as the Word of God is preached and as we listen, uh, that the Spirit of God will use the Word of God to accomplish your purpose in our lives, to make us more like Jesus for those who know him and to bring people to Jesus for those who don't. Uh, We know that that's 
on your heart, even as we'll see today. So guide and lead me, I pray, that I might be filled with your spirit to be your instrument for the blessing of others and to the glory of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, so this is introducing a, a new series for us, Prayer Postures, and we're going to have three messages. Uh, I get the first cab off the rank. Uh, I'll take the first five verses, which basically is Jesus praying for himself. Uh, next week, we'll look at the next section, which is Jesus praying for his immediate disciples. And then the third week, we'll look at Jesus praying for all disciples, all believers, which means us today in the 21st century. Uh, and as we look at this section, I, I want you to think about the fact that uh, it's Jesus who's praying, <laughs> and uh, we're not exactly Jesus, and so not all of that which he prays will be true of us, but the main theme of what he prays will certainly be true of us, and that's what I hope you'll take away this morning. And so there are two parts to this message. The first part is a significant moment for prayer in the opening verse, verse 1, and then the second part is a singular purpose for prayer, which will be very obvious. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And uh, the main idea of this message is basically the first prayer posture, because it's prayer postures, we're going to get three of them, so this is number one, is passion for God's glory. Therefore, and this will be the application, you can ask God for everything you need that you might glorify him. And I'll guarantee that's a prayer God will hear and that's a prayer that God will answer. So what about this significant moment for prayer? If you've been following the series in John, you'll know that previous to this chapter, Jesus has been teaching his disciples uh, leading up to the amazing event of the cross. And he closes his teaching with his disciples with a, a declaration of triumph. He says, I have overcome the world, which is not quite completed yet, but it's as good as completed, and so the statement is made without uh, apology. And then he turns his attention from his disciples to heaven. And so it opens up that when Jesus has spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. So the focus shifts from earthly realm to the heavenly realm. And this is a common posture for prayer, lifting your eyes to heaven where God is considered to be, even though he's everywhere because he's omnipresent. And he prays to the Father and it's prompted by this significant moment in his earthly ministry. Uh, in John's gospel, the use of the term the hour is quite significant. It's all about a certain time. Uh, provides, a, a, I guess, a, a way in which you understand Jesus' schedule. And on many occasions previously in John's Gospel, we hear that his hour had not come, uh, that timing wasn't quite ready yet uh, at the wedding of Canaan and Galilee. And so sometimes the hour says it's not yet time. Uh, the word time is used as well in John 7, verses 6 and 8. Uh, but the hour is the one that seems to be most dominant. And then this is the point at which it says time has arrived. The hour has come. He also said it in John 12, 23. 
And he also said it in John 13, 1, because this is the culminating day leading up to the culminating event of Jesus' death in our place. You see, Jesus' entire life and ministry was pre-planned. It was divinely orchestrated. It was not just an accident bouncing from one day to the next with no purpose and no certainty about what that day was for. He actually knew in advance what God's plan was and how he fitted into it. In fact, he was the fulfillment of it himself. And so the timing of everything was well known to Jesus. And so he could say, this isn't the right time. And even if they tried to arrest him and imprison him or put him to death, uh, he never was up until the right time. He would pass through their midst in sometimes miraculous ways. Otherwise, otherwise he would hide or move out of the territory to a safer place. You see, the full reason for Jesus coming to earth is now going to be fulfilled. It's going to be realized uh, in his atoning death on the cross, in his resurrection from the grave, and then his ascension into heaven. And that's all that's built into this, the hour has come. And so this actual moment of time prompts Jesus to pray. And you should notice that this is just before he's going to be arrested. It's just before he's going to be cruelly treated. It's just before he's going to be nailed to a cross. Uh, John doesn't have the Garden of Gethsemane in it. But this is the same timing as the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus prayed in agony, this cup to be taken from him, nevertheless, your will be done. You know, our lives are also divinely orchestrated. And especially for believers, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says that God has prepared in advance good works for us to fulfill. For us to walk in. That provision of a purposeful life, an ordered life, a meaningful life is true for every believer. And so your response, as mine should be, towards having that kind of life is to pray. To pray that I would be faithful to the good works that God has already prepared for me to walk in. That is part of what Jesus is praying here, and it's what we need to pray as well. So there's a significant moment for prayer for Jesus. But then there's a singular purpose in his prayer. He prays for God to glorify him, that he then might glorify his Father. And you might ask, well, what would he pray at such a significant time as this? You know, if you were about to go to be arrested to be beaten, to be scourged, then to be crucified, what would you be praying for? Well, I know what I'd be praying for, escape. <laughs> I want out of this. I don't want to go through this. I don't want to have to suffer, and I certainly won't want to have to die, because uh, I'm innocent. I mean, I, I'm not worthy of that death. I mean, Jesus is certainly innocent and not worthy of this impending death. Yet, his answer to what would he pray at this time is no different to all of his life. He prayed for the Father to be glorified. And he prayed that he would be glorified so that the Father would be glorified. And those two are indivisibly linked. You can't separate 
those two realities. You see, if Jesus is to glorify the Father, then the Father has to glorify him. And there's a very significant reason for that. We're going to see it in the identity of Jesus not too far away in this passage. Now, some might think, that's very selfish. Isn't he just sort of praying for himself? That's some selfish prayer. Well, of course, the answer to that is no, it's not selfish. Uh, even though God can be completely self-centered because he is God. Although he isn't, actually, when we see the workings of God in the persons of God and then his beautiful works towards us. But there are two main reasons why this isn't selfish. To ask for glory for Jesus, to ask that for himself, is not selfish. One, because Jesus is God. He is God incarnate, and we're going to see that emphasized at the end of this section. And so he deserves glory. He has glory by right. But perhaps more importantly in this setting, his purpose in praying for him to be glorified is actually for the Father to be glorified. And so in a sense, he's not self-centered in his purpose. He's actually God-centered in his purpose. Now, as he talks through with his father about what this looks like, we see some very interesting things about this glorification of Jesus. And so he tells us that God has given to him all authority among humanity, over humanity. Because he uses this term, since you have given him authority, speaking of the Son, over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Uh, Jesus tends to pray in the third person, which you might think is a bit strange. I mean, I normally say, I, bless me. I mean, I normally use the first person, but Jesus keeps praying in the third person. And the reason for that, I think, is because he is very oriented to his father's working, not his working. And so he is a third party in the whole process. But he's actually the central party, of course, as he's the one praying. Somehow in the mystery of the Trinity, and I don't understand the Trinity. If you ever really comprehend the Trinity, let me know, because I have never done so. Uh, I, I can describe it, I can tell you what it involves, but to comprehend it. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all being equally God, all having all the attributes of God, all having the honor and the glory of God, and yet having relationship within the Godhead. It's quite an amazing reality. And so it says that Jesus has been given something. But it's not like you would give to somebody else. You know, in our world, if I am the giver and you are the receiver, then the giver is superior to the receiver. He has the authority and power. But that isn't the case in the Godhead. But there is this sense of roles, that the Son has a role to play, the Father has a role to play, the Spirit has a role to play. And in the Godhead, it's mutually relational. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, the Father glorifies the Son, the Son glorifies the Father, and the Spirit just stays in the background all the way. He doesn't glorify himself at all. He keeps pointing to the Son and the Father. That's the nature of the Godhead. It's very others-oriented within itself, as much as then it becomes others-oriented in relationship to us. So this is authority, because authority is important. If you don't have authority, you can't do certain things. And Jesus has authority to accomplish the Father's purpose, the Father's will. In fact, he could not glorify the Father. He had no authority to do so. 
And so having authority in the realm in which God's glory needs to be revealed is so important and it's clearly stated here. He also couldn't provide for us in our need of salvation, in our forgiveness of sin, if he didn't have that authority. And we know Jesus has authority. Throughout the Gospels, you read of his authority. He's got authority over demons. He casts them out. He's got authority over disease. He heals. He's got authority over the creation. He can say to a storm and fierce wind and threatening situation, be still, and it's still, completely calm. But the most important authority that Jesus had is the authority over life. You see, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He could call out to a dead body, live. And Lazarus, four days in the grave, came out alive. He has authority. And that authority is really critical because it goes on to describe, in this case, his authority to give eternal life. But that's based on another authority, which is I can lay down my life by my choice. No one can take it from me. And I can take up my life by my choice and nobody can prevent it from happening. That's the cross and the resurrection, which Jesus accomplished for us. But then it says that he has authority to give eternal life. He can grant eternal life to those who are gifted to him by the Father. Now, you'll notice the emphasis in this section is on God. God being the agent, God being the one producing and accomplishing the outcomes, God being the focus of glory. And that's not to say that there's no human responsibility in salvation. Uh, you are responsible as I am responsible to believe the message that is presented by the Word of God to me, to turn away from my self-centered, my own running of my life to surrender to God's provision and authority and work in my life. Now, that is as much a part of the message of the New Testament, but here the focus is on what God does and how God works. And it's God who gifts to Jesus these who are believers. Jesus then explains what this eternal life is. And I don't know about you, but probably in my early years as a believer, I thought of eternal life as sort of an unending life. You know, once you get the gift of salvation, then it goes on and on and on and on and on and on and never finishes. So kind of a duration idea of eternal life. But that's actually not the full or complete story. Because all human beings have unending life. If you know Jesus, you have unending life with the Father in his presence and Jesus' presence forever. Unending, unbroken. If you don't know Jesus, you have unending life, but it's separated from the Father. It's away from God in a place called hell. But we all have unending life. So that's not really a definition of eternal life. Because Jesus says, what is eternal life? It's relational. It's to know the Father and to know the Son. And again, he uses third per person to himself. He talks about himself as the Messiah rather than I. He doesn't use the word I. You see... Eternal life is something that involves connection. It involves intimacy. It involves relationship. So it's an expression of quality, not quantity. And that fits very well because Jesus said himself, I've come 
that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Uh, Not just existence, not mere existence, but really full, rich life. And it's only experienced in a relationship with God. And so I guess a good application here would be, are you experiencing eternal life? Religion is not the answer. A lot of people look at church and think religion. Uh, Sometimes even people inside the church look at church and think religion. But, you know, religion doesn't give you eternal life. Uh, Religion says do. Do, 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 and then you get certain benefits from doing. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus says done. Finished. That's one of Jesus' cry from the cross. It is finished. On the work of Jesus, then we receive, free of charge, but not without cost, this gift of life. And it's out of the life that we then do. It's not the do to get the life. It's the life that produces the do, the good works that God has prepared for us. So don't think that you can get eternal life through religious adherence or religious practice. You only get eternal life through a relationship with God the Father, through the person of Jesus the Son, because of the work of the Holy Spirit. That's where eternal life is, and that's where you'll experience it. You're not going to experience eternal life as a Christian if you are just legalistically trying to follow a set of rules. I'll guarantee you that will be miserable. You will find eternal life as a Christian by the work of the Spirit as you depend on that work within you, working out through you. And so Jesus then goes on to say in verse 4 that he's completed this work on earth. Uh, He says that he's glorified the Father in completing the work that he'd been given to do on earth, fully accomplishing it. Now, of course, he hasn't yet been arrested and he hasn't yet been beaten and cruelly treated and then crucified and resurrected and ascended. All those things are still future to this prayer, but they are included in it. Now, all of this is as certainly completed as if he was past the cross and past the grave and in heaven. Jesus completely obeyed the Father. In fact, the emphasis in the Gospels is that Jesus obeys the Father's will, not his own. It's a regular emphasis, uh, perhaps highlighted most by the Garden of Gethsemane, where in agony he prays that the cup be taken from him, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That is the ultimate expression of the obedience of Christ to the Father's will, but it's mentioned many times in John's Gospel. And he also says that the works that he does are not his own works, He says these are the Father's works. In fact, he calls on them as a testimony against his opponents to affirm that he is truly the one he says he is. He is truly the Messiah, the promised one of God, and particularly God incarnate. You see, such was Jesus' obedience to the Father that he actually fully revealed the invisible God. You know, John opens his gospel with the fact that God is invisible, but Jesus hath made him visible. You see, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Son of God, God incarnate, dwells among us because God is among us in Him. And when Philip asked this question, show us the Father, 
Jesus' response to him was, Philip, have I been so long with you? You see me, Philip. You see the Father. I am the perfect, complete revelation of God. And Hebrews tells us that. Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 1 verse 3 that he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature because he is God incarnate. And so when Jesus completes this work, he actually glorifies God to the ultimate because he reveals in his actions as well as his words who God is and what God is like. But then he finishes off this part of the prayer with reference to previous glory. Jesus bookends this with a repeat of his request for glory. He says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is an amazing statement because it substantiates his legitimacy in asking for glory, but it also confirms his identity as God incarnate. It's interesting here that his request for glorification includes an additional element, the Father's presence. Uh, He wanted to be home, and he's looking past the events that are unfolding in the hours to come, the cruel treatment, the crucifixion, the burial, then the resurrection, and then the ascension. I don't know about you, but there have been times when I've been away from home for three or four weeks. And at the end of you know, a couple of days, you don't miss home as much. But after a few days and a few weeks, you start to have a certain longing. And it's a longing for home. It's a longing to be with Elizabeth, my wife. It's a longing to be with our children. It's even a longing to be with you guys, to be with my spiritual family. There's a something about home that calls you that you can't certainly just push away. Now, some people have a very bad experience of home. I understand that in our fallen world. But the majority of people, home is the place to be. Uh, our son gave Elizabeth, his mother, this is the oldest one, Daniel, uh, for her uh, Mother's Day, uh, a little thing that said a mother's heart is home. And there's something precious about relationship, something very special about relationship. And Jesus wants to return to what he has already enjoyed for eternity past, which is this intimate, uninterrupted, unhindered, uncontaminated intimacy with God, his Father. That's why the Godhead is relational. That's why we are relational, because we're made in God's image. It's all about relationship. And Jesus desires that the glory that he's previously had, which was glorious, be his experience again. Because it would not be too far short of, well, not too far in the future, I'll say, that he's going to experience a loss of that fellowship. On the cross, for three hours of our time, In the darkness of that day, the Father turned away from the Son when our sins were laid upon him. 
You know, all of the physical beatings, all of the damage that was done to his body did not call him to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That cry came when sin was laid on him. And the fellowship that was uninterrupted for eternity past, the intimacy that was experienced, the beauty of that relationship, the deepness and the love of that relationship was broken for that period of time. When he paid what is the true price of sin, which is separation from God. That's what sin does. It separates us from our creator. And it was in that moment that the work of the cross was being accomplished. And you can't capture that in The Passion of the Christ. You can't capture that in any Hollywood production, even though The Passion of Christ captures the physical sufferings extremely well. You can never capture the spiritual suffering of Jesus on the cross. You can't do it. And he did it because he was obedient to his Father out of love for him and you and I. That's why he went to the cross. You see, the cross is the demonstration and the clearest and most powerful demonstration of who God is. You see, when Jesus asked the Father for what was rightfully his, and even more so now as an obedient servant fulfilling the Father's will, it was going to be in the fulfillment of that will that his Father would be glorified. You know, when you realize what the cross represents, you must understand that it actually declares God's character in most beautiful and powerful ways. I mean, we see God's justice and holiness displayed in the payment of sin's penalty on the cross. That sin couldn't just be ignored, it couldn't be winked at, it couldn't just be unaddressed. It had to be dealt with, and it was. Justice and holiness. We see God's wrath in that separation takes place between the Son and the Father. What an incredible cost the Son had to bear, which we don't really grasp. We see his love because there's a gift in his Son in dying in our place on that cross. And we see his mercy and his grace in that a substitute has been provided so that we can have reconciliation and forgiveness. There's a lot more you could say about the character of God revealed in the cross, but they're enough just to give you some glimpses. When you look at the cross, you see what God is like. When you look at Jesus, you see what God is like. You see, the revelation of God's nature and character, it's actually glorious. It is so glorious. And that's why if people want to investigate the Christian faith, they just need to read the four Gospels. If you read about Jesus, you're confronting the Christian faith because it's all about Jesus. And he's the most attractive person that's ever lived on earth. I mean, the people who are most comfortable with Jesus are actually the, the outcasts of society, the tax collectors, the sinners as they're called in the Gospels. The people who are most uncomfortable with Jesus are the religious leaders because he challenges their self-righteous pride in that they were trusting religion for their power. Jesus is the most attractive of all people. And so if you haven't investigated Jesus, you really need to, because it will change your life. It changed mine a long time ago now. So I hope you can see as we've had a brief look at these five verses that the main idea is that 
the first posture of prayer is the passion for God's glory. You see, that was Jesus' passion. He was passionate about the glory of his Father. He was passionate about being an instrument of that glory. And so he could ask for glory for himself because it would inevitably bring glory to his Father. You see, a positive answer to his prayer, we know it was answered well, and this is encouraging for the next two sections, by the way. I mean, if Jesus prays, you've got to expect an answer, right? God answers his prayer, but the answer is suffering. The answer is the cross. And the resurrection and the ascension, yes, but the cross first. And that cross was needed for us. It wasn't needed for God himself. It was needed for us. So in a sense, Jesus is praying for us as he's praying for himself, as he's praying for the Father's glory to be revealed. If Jesus wasn't glorified, then no one would have been forgiven of sin. No one would have had a reconciliation to God. No one would have had eternal life. It's all about Jesus and the cross. You know, Westminster Confession was written a long time ago, but it actually is a very good confession of our faith. And the first major question it asks is, you know, what is the chief end of man? I mean, that's an important question. You know, why do you exist? What is the reason for your life? Why are you here? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Boy, that Westminster Confession got it right. Right on, very beginning. Uh, it's, you know, not quite in our church tradition. It's not a Baptist confession. It's more in the Reformed tradition. But it's a good confession because it gets what the Bible teaches as its center. We're created to glorify God. That's why God made us. And so it's right if you focus your prayer on the glory of God. That's a good focus to have. And if you're praying for yourself that you might be able to glorify God, that's a great prayer to make. And one I'm sure God will hear and answer. You know, Scriptures tell us that we glorify God by our good works. Matthew 5, verse 16, Jesus said that we are to put our good works on display that our Father in heaven might be glorified. And God has already created those good works for us to walk in. And so if you're praying for the glory of God, if you have that passion in your heart for his glory, then you do need to pray for yourself. Because you can't do any of these works. You can't put good works on display when they're only your works. Because your works don't actually glorify God. It's the works of the Father through you just like the works of the Father through Jesus. They're, they're the works that glorify God because they're the works that are directed to God. They're the works that are for God. They are the works that have the quality of God in them. So it's not selfish to pray for yourself. It's a good thing to pray for yourself when your prayer focuses on bringing glory to God. So let's make this our posture, our first posture in prayer, passion for God's glory. So that we can ask God for everything, everything you need to bring glory to God, and I'll guarantee you'll get it. But don't expect that it will necessarily be all that you expect. Because Jesus' answer from God for his prayer was the cross. And I think often God's answer to our prayers is not pleasure, but pain. It's not an easy path, but a 
difficult one because it's in those paths that his quality of life is most clearly demonstrated. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus prays. He does it often in his life and in this critical moment as the cross is pending, uh, he prays. And his first focus is glory. Glory for himself that there might be glory for you. Now we thank you that we can learn much from him. Uh, we are so far short of your glory, but we are hopeful that the Spirit of God will keep conforming us to the image of your Son, making us more like him so that we give you greater glory on a day-by-day basis. Thank you that you provided all for us in your Son, that his work on the cross is more than sufficient for our sin and his resurrection is more than sufficient for our life. We thank you for that gift that is free, but it's at great cost. So help us today to respond with a willing heart, to be willing to set aside our agendas, our preferences, our plans, and to be open and willing for yours. And we know that this will bring you glory, and you deserve it, and we ask in Jesus' name.